0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, and today it's an honor and a privilege to be able to speak with Wei-Jin Chan, chairman and CEO of PAG, a leading Asia-focused private equity firm. Previously, Wei-Jin Chan was a partner of the private equity firm TPG and co-managing partner of Newbridge Capital. Over two decades, Weijin Chan has had a number of historic financial transactions that have returned billions of dollars in profits to his firm's investors. Previously, Chan was a managing director at J.P. Morgan and an assistant professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and was the founding editor of the China Economic Review. In his youth, he spent several years working as a laborer in the Gobi Desert during China's Cultural Revolution. He holds an MA and a PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, and an MBA from the University of San Francisco. Shan has a trilogy of books, all published by Wiley & Sons, starting with his 2019, Out of the Gobi, My Story of China and America, followed a year later by Money Games, the inside story of how American deal-makers saved Korea's most iconic bank and just out in January of 2023 is Money Machine, a trailblazing venture of an American company in China. Dr. Chan, Shan, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today about your life and writing.
2: Thank you very much, kids, for that very kind introduction. It's a great pleasure to be on your program.
1: Thanks, Shan. Let me start uh, with where I first came across your name. It was in a 2009 book uh, by the chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia, uh, Stephen Roach on The Next Asia, Opportunities and Challenges for a New Globalization. And I mention it because near the end of his chapter on Chinese rebalancing, there was a section called The Great Chinese Profit Debates, October 2006. Uh, In it, Professor Roach summarizes the differing opinions between the World Bank where you had spent some time on the bond desk and uh, your own uh, thoughts at the time, uh, which were outlined in arguments put forth in a number of reports and journal articles by both you and the bank. The, the oversimplified account uh, would go something like this. The World Bank, extrapolating for macro data, had argued that Chinese enterprise savings and Profitability had soared in recent years and concluded that China's investment boom was largely self-financed through internal enterprise profits rather than through the banking system. You countered, though, with an article in the Far Eastern Economic Review rather provocatively titled The World Bank's China Delusions and uh, that China's national income accounts biased conventional measures of profitability to the upside, thus obscuring poor returns on equity and misguided capital allocations by the banks. At this point in time, uh, you were at TPG Newbridge, or Newbridge Capital, and firmly ensconced in a private equity career, having earned Professor Roach's accolades when he described you as long one of Asia's most successful investors having consummated the takeover and sale of distressed Korea First Bank following the Asian financial crisis of 1998, and more recently, the only foreign investor to take control of a Chinese bank, Shenzhen Development Bank. Um, You had not written your books uh, chronicling the ups and downs of these private equity deals yet. In fact, Out of the Gobi was still over 10 years from publication. Can you share with us the significance of your disagreement with the World Bank at the time. Uh, Professor Roach had framed the debate a bit like a price fight with the World Bank in one corner and you in the other. Your one-two punch, uh, so to speak, was concurrently publishing your commentary in the Wall Street Journal and extended argument in the Academic Journal. Um, How does the metaphor sit with you today? Would you consider it a knockout or a win by points?
2: Thank you very much for that question. I'm very surprised that you went back so far to uh, uncover that particular debate. I was not trying to win points or trying to win a fight. I was simply a little concerned about whether or not investors would uh, have a clear and accurate picture of China's economic growth model and where investors may or may not make their money by investing in China. You see, from my point of view, China's growth model was rather unique. It was driven, especially at that time, we're talking about 2006 when this debate took place, and that was, of course, 17 years ago. At the time, China's growth was very much driven by fixed asset investments, which represented about 45 to 50% of China's GDP. No other country at any time in history, at any stage in their industrialization process, has invested even close to 35% of GDP. But China has been able to invest, even today, about 45% of GDP every year, propelling very rapid economic growth. But that growth model has created one particular issue, that is overcapacity in many different industries to such an extent that even though there's a growth because of overcapacity, because of overcompetition, the profit margin is very thin. I like to present a graph to many of my investors a few years back. You know, Back in 2014, I think, I showed the graph that shows there is one curve between 1992, the end of 1992, that is between 1993 and 2014, in about 20 years, the Chinese nominal GDP grew 24 times, 24 times in about 20 years. But Morgan Stanley China index, the stock market index dropped 34%. If you think about it, typically, Mm. of course, there's no strong correlation between economic performance and stock market performance at any given moment. But over a long 20 year period of time, you would expect some positive correlation, right? You would expect that uh, if there's a high economic growth rate, the stock market should also go up. But in the Chinese case, nominal GDP went up 24 times and then the stock market index dropped one third. Why is that the case? It's because of overcapacity in almost every industry that you can think of. Steel industry, China produces more than half of the steel output in the world today. Cement, more than half. Shipbuilding, chemical industry, aluminum. Every major industry, China had tremendous overcapacity. And that's the reason why there's a growth, but there's little profitability and why in the stock market index, over a 20 year period of time dropped one third when the economy went up more than 20 times. So I just didn't believe the argument put forward by some researchers of the World Bank who are highly respected and I still highly respect uh, looking at some data to say that uh, the Chinese firms are profitable and that's not the case. And uh, simple as that, I just wanted to make that point so that investors would not invest in sectors saddled with overcapacity, without much profit, but to focus on those sectors where there is profitability. The reason that China was able to invest so much and is still able to invest so much is because China uniquely has the highest savings rate in the world. No other country has this high savings rate at about even today forty-five percent of GDP. But at that time, about fifty percent of GDP. Well,
1: wow. no, thanks for sharing that and.
2: I can give you another data point, which is uh, along the same lines. So between 2011 and 2013, in three years, China consumed 6.6 billion metric tons of cement. In the 20th century in the United States, between 1900 and 1999, America consumed 4.4 billion tons of cement. So. China consumed one third more cement in three years than America did in one hundred years, and that's the extent to which China was building capacity at the time.
1: That's a that's a good metaphor there, uh, the concrete nation. Well, let's um let's move on. Your first book, Out of the Gobi, uh, my story of China and America, was published in two thousand nineteen by Wiley, as as I mentioned. Uh, Janet Yellen currently. Uh, Secretary of the United States Treasury, wrote the foreword for the book, noting that she first met you in 1982 at at Berkeley. You were starting your PhD program in business administration, and she was your academic advisor. Um, There is no higher praise or better introduction to your first book and the broad contours of your remarkable life. I want to use parts of Yellen's uh, forward as prompts for questions uh, to give listeners a sense of the various episodes in your life as as depicted uh, in your first book. Uh, Janet Yellen uh, writes, "Um, I was stunned to discover he had no formal math training, all the math he knew he had learned by himself by candlelight. Can you talk to us about your lack of formal math training in particular, given its significance, especially uh, in graduate school? As, as you recount some interesting episodes near the end of the book, uh, the title was The People's Republic of Berkeley, uh, where you talk about meeting your advisor, Yellen, and her husband, uh, George Akerlof, uh, then an economics professor who later won the Nobel and both advising you, and, and they were concerned that that you would encounter some difficulties, especially in economics uh, 201A, which you wanted to take. Interesting as well, you mentioned the challenges of linear algebra relative to calculus, and in it, the Calculus A course exam, where you finish an exam uh, in lightning fast time, uh, well before the other students, and the student assistant uh, who's invigilating the exam. Uh, accuses you of cheating, uh, because you had a, a perfect paper. You you clearly have a propensity for mathematical reasoning. H- how do you explain it? Is it more uh, about hard work and study, and less about a natural ability, or or both? Uh,
2: the reason I didn't read mathematics was because of the peculiar background I grew up in, that is during the China's Cultural Revolution. And I uh, When I finished elementary school, the Cultural Revolution started by Mao. For the next 10 years, all the schools, almost all the schools in China were shut down. For such a vast nation, all the schools were shut down for the sake of the Cultural Revolution. So I never attended secondary school at all. I never received secondary education. For 10 years, I was out of school. And I was sent along with my peers to the Gobi Desert to work as hard laborers. And that was the subject of my first book, Out of the Gobi. Uh, we spent time over there. Eventually, we got out of there. So when I got into the PhD program at UC Berkeley, my math training obviously was very lacking. And much of the math I knew at the time uh, was through self-studies. So I had to catch up very quickly. It was very challenging because I had to take math courses in the mathematics department with uh, PhD students in the math department, statistics department, economics department, and all that. So it was tough. I would say I just worked extremely hard. You refer to that book, Linear Algebra, and it's a 400-page book, a textbook. And I I don't suppose anybody read a textbook from cover to cover, let alone doing all the questions and problems at the end of every chapter. I did. During that semester, I read that book from cover to cover, doing all the problems seven times. <laughs> Eventually I earned an A plus for that course. <laughs> so so it was yes. just hard work. I was waiting to do hard work because I missed education so much in my life. And you talked about this uh, teaching assistant who didn't believe I could turn in a perfect paper Uh, In record time, I was the first one to turn in the paper. So she accused me of cheating. (laughs) She just assumed that I cheated. So I asked her to give me a set of fresh questions. And I did it still before uh, many people finished their first round. And it was still perfect score. (laughs) So then she uh, was very happy with me.
1: Nice. Yeah. End of story. No, I think that it's a a great uh, anecdote uh, for the book, Among So Many. In your second chapter... School cut short. You describe your elementary school experience in Beijing. Part of the point here is is that you grew up during the Great Leap Forward. It was well underway when you started uh, elementary school. You had what appears from the narrative a good education and a good time there. You're able to learn how to build radios by attending science camp, and and this kind of foreshadows, I think, at points where you do you challenge authority at the grade school it's a great chapter and all of the way you have structured the chapters you you set the context with with some related history as kind of a prequel and then you continue the ongoing uh narrative which people will find interesting and moving as evidenced by uh, the book's popularity uh, since 2019. But I want to direct your attention to your real worry at the time as you finished up elementary school like any ambitious 12 year old in the spring of 1966. It was all about doing well on the upcoming uh, middle school exams, because this was key, obviously, and still is uh, to a top high school and university uh, placement. Yeah, uh, suddenly things changed, as you note in your third chapter, Storm of Revolution, because as you've mentioned, uh, by that summer of 1966, you found yourself at the start of the Cultural Revolution. Unlike the Great Leap Forward's uh, far-reaching famine, which you came to learn about later in life, the Chinese Cultural Revolution was front and center, canceling exams and school uh, was just the start. And well before You ended up in the Gobi Desert with your Army Construction Corps comrades. You found yourself, at least early on, caught up in the excitement, as would any teenager, uh, suddenly freed of the restraints of study and Confucian control, family, parents, teachers. Uh, You you were no longer subject to all of that. On your website, you posted a picture, uh, among others, uh, from October of 1966. You and your friends are sitting beneath an inscription by the Red Army Commander Zhu De uh, commemorating a victory over the nationalist troops. Can you share a bit of the sense of camaraderie and courage that finds a, a smiling young boy, you look uh, younger uh, than your uh, companions in the pictures, uh, in the Jingong Mountains of the Jiangxi province? Did you find that in some way it was kind of preparation for your mission to the Gobi Desert a, a few years later? Thank
2: you, Chief. The exam that you refer to was not middle school exam, but the exam to be selected to go to the middle school. I I took the graduation exam for elementary school, but I was yet to take the entrance exam for middle school when everything was shut down and shut down for the next 10 years. So during that time, I followed a group of older friends to travel around the country, which was encouraged uh, at the time. China descended into chaos. All the schools were closed. And not only that, Red Guards roamed the streets, destroying everything. And then everywhere, uh, transportation became free. You could go travel all across the country by train, by bus. And at that time, nobody could afford airplane. And there were no, basically, air travel. Buses and trains were all free. So I just followed a group of friends who were about four years older than me to travel across the country. As a teenager, or barely a teenager, I was yet to be 13. I must say it was uh, exhilarating, you know, I, I was no longer under the watch of my parents. I left Beijing. I was traveling around on my own with some friends with very little money in my pocket. And I was seeing the country, it was quite exciting. I never thought a few years later I would be sent into the Gobi Desert. So
1: the idea that
2: I was preparing for something never occurred to me.
1: Yeah, no, that's interesting. And thanks for sharing that. But Just, if
2: you think about it, yeah. for a vast country like China, at that time, all of a sudden, all schools were closed and they would remain closed for the next 10 years. How much waste of human resources that so-called cultural revolution brought about, right? It was my generation, I think, can correctly be described as the lost generation, because I would say 99% of my peers never went back to school after the Cultural Revolution started. You know, for 10 years, there was no schooling. And after that, 99% of the people were not equipped to go back to school. They never studied. So think about the waste of talent and resources for the entire nation when all schools were shut down for such a long time. So my generation is truly a lost generation. I'll give you an example how lost we were. In China today, the college-age students, uh, 50% go to college. At that time, three out of uh, 1,000 eventually got college degree, that is my generation. I went to the United States in 1980, and in that year, for entire China, 1,860 students were qualified to study abroad for a country of almost a billion people. And in that year, I'll give you a funny statistic, because I checked, in that year, about three to 4,000 people died of lightning in that year. <laughs> so the chances of being qualified to go to a school outside of China, were less than being struck by lightning for the people of my generation, and that's uh, the waste that so-called cultural evolution brought to China in terms of human resources.
1: Uh, well, that uh, put some light there on that uh, on that issue. It's a it's a little bit depressing to think about it, even in the forward. Janet Yellen is going on, and she says this. I I found it mind-boggling how far he had journeyed from working as a hard laborer without a secondary education and with no command of english to becoming a professor at one of america's most prestigious universities all in about 10 years the final chapter of out of the Gobi is titled ivy league professor uh it was a period when you were Teaching and writing academic papers, and doing summer consulting, and as well as um, finding the time and the energy to establish the uh, the China Economic Journal. Uh, your own work with co-authors, as well, was later uh, being cited in academic textbooks uh, focused on economics, economic sociology, globalization, and privatization, as well as uh, strategic management. Um, the choice of a position at the Wharton Business School had its advantages uh, in terms of being tilted toward research over teaching. Still, um, the irony of having a doctorate in business administration, uh, but not having hands-on practical experience uh, was not lost on you. Can you share uh, with listeners some of your thinking uh, by this key transition point in your career? Uh, We're talking about 1993. You were some 15 years plus out of the Gobi at that point. And you and your family had, in a sense, been somewhat Americanized. The money was one thing, but can you talk a bit about the other key drivers in the decision-making process uh, to leave academia?
2: After six years teaching at Wharton and being locked up in the ivory tower, I got a little bored. And the outside world was much more exciting, especially, of course, our students get into business, Wharton graduates, and seem to be doing very interesting work, but uh, there was one turning point, and that was China. You know, I came from China, grew up in China, went to America, got my education, became a professor over there. But there was some very profound changes happening in China around that time. You know that China went through this June Fourth Tiananmen Square incident in 1989. Subsequently, economic growth rate came down quite significantly to about 4 or 5%. Then in 1992, Deng Xiaoping, the paramount leader, took a tour to the southern part of China and made some remarks such as, if anybody doesn't want to do economic reforms, meaning moving in the direction of the market, which in my view is really moving in the direction of capitalism, he should step down. And after that, China's GDP grew in 1992, about 14%. All of a sudden the economy started to take off. So American multinationals started to look at the China market with a keen interest. American major investment banks also went to China, went to Hong Kong, went to China to exploit the potential of that market. And people need people, people like myself, who understand American business, who understand how China works. So I was approached by a senior person by the name of Pat Bizak at Morgan, and he just made me an offer I felt I couldn't refuse. (laughs) Of course, the money was part of it, but the idea was to move to Hong Kong and to try something completely new, which is called investment banking, which I never touched before. But I had the confidence that with my training in the U.S., And uh, with my teaching experiences, with my knowledge of China as a country, and with my drive, I probably could give it a try at uh, this uh, JP Morgan, an American investment bank. So I was very tempted, and eventually I made decision to accept uh, JP Morgan's offer, and that's how it happened.
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting, and we kind of we compressed a lot there, but we're not really here to summarize the book and. And Out of the Gobi really needs um, some time and attention. There's um, There's quite a few chapters. Um, you do bring up the other books, and and the, and there is a, a link to the trilogy. So just to kind of finish up here with the Janet Yellen forward, she said this at the end. She said, "It is not only uh, Shan's personal history." that makes this book so interesting, but but also how the stories of China and America merge in just one moment in time to create an inspired individual so unique and driven and so representative of the true spirits of both countries, uh, particularly now. The, the people of both nations have much to learn from and teach one another. I hope that Chen's book will serve as a, a cornerstone in that ongoing Uh, conversation. The ongoing conversation that your academic advisor, Janet Yellen, refers to um, has suffered much uh, since the change of leadership control in both uh, countries over the last 10 years. Uh, It's not hard to agree with the spirit of her message. And I want to focus, though, on the idea of leadership, as just mentioned, and your 13th chapter Uh, in Out of the Gobi, and I don't think we'll be giving away too much, but the title of that chapter is called Brick Making the Ancient Way. In it, you come up with the idea of building a machine to manufacture the bricks your army construction court work unit is literally uh, making by hand. Um, It's an interesting story on a number of levels, and you want to, well, I want to invite you to recount as much as you'd like regarding the challenges uh, you faced. But it is the realization that you and your comrades come to about how good leadership makes such a difference uh, that I'd like to ask you about. Um, do you feel like the imprint of that experience and recognizing the contrast between the morale and achievements, as, as you put it in that chapter, between the different Army Construction Corps companies was later of some value in terms of your management choices, as a private equity professional, and for that matter, does it inform your own uh, leadership style and the decisions you make these days uh, as a CEO of PAG? Not directly,
2: but indirectly, of course. Uh, what I describe in the book is that uh, I was a bricklayer, layer along with my peers. Making breaks is among the hardest jobs I have ever done. It was backbreaking. You have to dig out a lot of sand. You have to mix, clay with sand, with water, and then you will have to use mold to create uh, bricks, dry them up, and then move them into a kiln, very big kiln, taking tens of thousands of bricks at one time. And then you couldn't sleep. You have to burn that kiln for about a week in order to make bricks. And at the time, I was thinking that uh, if there was a machine to make the bricks, It would save a lot of our labor and make our job much easier. Uh, In order to uh, explore that idea, we went to a different place where they did have such a machine. And we found that place, that particular farm, was much better managed than where we were. The leaders of our farm were both incompetent and indifferent to uh, what we were doing. They didn't really care, right? So this other place where they did make breaks with machines. Life was much better than we were, and we starved uh, very often. And that was the hardest part when I was working in the Gobi Desert. I suppose leadership does make a difference. Uh, Management does make a difference. And now I'm in private equity business. We very often buy control of the business in which we invest. And for us, it's critically important if you have control, to make sure you have the right management because the management can make or break a business. You know, The business is good because the management is good. The business is bad because the management is bad. So in our business, it's critically important if things don't work out, we replace the management immediately. In both of my books, Money Games and Money Machine, we talked about how after we invested and bought control of the two banks, we replaced management, not once, but twice. Our own management team didn't work out. We had to uh, replace them. So I suppose if you have to think about a link between my experience in the Gobi and uh, what I'm doing today, uh, yes, management does make a difference.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for that. It, it may seem a, a bit forced, but as you go through the trilogy, as you just said, interestingly, and you, and you note it, as well. And in the third book, you had that sense of deja vu that you'd already replaced the old management, you'd put in your uh, CEO. And then in both cases, uh, within uh, 12 or 18 months, you had had to replace them with someone from the board. Yes. Leadership really makes a big difference. Thanks for that, Shan. Let's move on then to money games. Uh, You've already mentioned accepting a position at Uh, JP Morgan. You cover this period in more detail in the first chapter of your second book. You choose to work in investment banking over consulting. Can you share a bit about some of the challenges you encountered with a firm uh, that eventually closed down its capital markets operations in Hong Kong, not long after the Asian financial crisis, And how how would you advise students or recent graduates these days contemplating similar careers uh, in China? What's the ratio of effort, as you described, in your IPO uh, sales market? Do you think it's still 20% financial engineering and 80% political engineering?
2: (laughs) I think the time when I was an investment banker, it was a special period in the Chinese market. The market was very new. The first overseas IPO undertaken by a Chinese firm was only in 1994. And I joined investment banking in 1993. So it was the very beginning of Chinese companies going to the public market to raise capital. And therefore, not only did they not know much about overseas capital markets, we as investment bankers at JP Morgan didn't know much about how they operated, and many of the Chinese companies were not even companies. They were under the centrally planned economic system, free economic reforms. They were simply factories making goods at the direction of the government and uh, surrendering all their profits to the Ministry of Finance, so they were not companies. So in order to bring them to overseas public markets and sell their stocks to foreign investors, you have to restructure them into joint stock companies. And many of these companies owned not only productive assets, but also what I call social assets. For example, a large factory I described in the book owned its own hospital, its own fire station, its own nursery, its own kindergarten you know, for all the employees and its own utilities and so forth, such a company cannot possibly go public because they have so much social responsibility. So the restructuring would involve separating out the social responsibilities and restructure them into, restructure the productive assets into joint stock companies, and then they're ready to go public. And then you will have to reconstruct their accounting because they never kept their books in such a way, you know, without the social responsibility. So you have to bring in one of the big four accounting firms to basically recreate their books for at least the past three years so that investors will know what have happened in the past three years. It was very complicated work. And our bankers were not experienced with doing this kind of work. You know, if you think about it, if you get a mandate to help a company go public, let's say a Hong Kong Stock Exchange or New York Stock Exchange, let's say the mandate comes from South Korea, it's already a mature company. And all you have to do is to write up the prospectus and sell the stock to investors. But if the mandate comes from China at that time, if the mandate came from China, if I use past tense, then you have to spend a year or two to restructure the company first and then to put them in shape before you could sell their stocks. So that work, nobody had any experience with, and it was hugely resource intensive, and it was not profitable. And that's why after a while, 1997, 98, after I left, JP Morgan simply shut down his investment banking business in Hong Kong. And it was not until much later that JP Morgan came back with Roar and opened up very big business here in Hong Kong. And that is because the Chinese market has matured. And the private sector has developed to such an extent that now the private sector in China contributes two-thirds of GDP. And in fact, China has been able to grow so much, not because of the state-owned sector, but because of the vibrant private sector. So now the situation is much better than 30 years ago when I first joined the investment banking.
1: That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. It's a good chapter, and the full title is actually the inside story of how American dealmakers saved Korea's uh, most iconic bank. A story of change on a number of levels. The first change was your primary focus, which had shifted uh, from China to South Korea at that time. This, though, uh, was a result of the change you had already made from investment banking to private equity you characterize this career move as going from the sell side to the buy side. Your first two chapters of Money Games uh, set the context well. Can you talk a little bit uh, about that? You guys were out shopping, so you were uh, clearly on the buy side of things. Can you share a bit (laughs) of, uh, of of the narrative here? In particular, your thoughtful explanation of the buy and sell side industry distinctions and how it helps differentiate the two financial service industry sectors, along with the, the rationale for, for your change. My
2: second book, Money Games, is about the outfit of TPG. At that time in Asia, it was called New Bridge Capital. Later, we rebranded the name to TPG Asia after we integrated New Bridge Capital into TPG. During the Asian financial crisis of 1997, many banks in Korea failed, and we went into Korea and bought what used to be the largest bank in the country called Korea First Bank. So the book is about that story of an American firm buying control of a nationwide iconic commercial bank in Korea. But the setting that story took place was the financial crisis of Asia in 1997. And during that crisis, just to give you some sense of how severe the crisis was, In 1997, Korea's stock market dropped 49% in value, and Korean won the currency, dropped 65.9% in value against the U.S. dollar. So the exchange rate uh, weakened so much that it lost 65.9% of the value. So in U.S. dollar terms, the Korean stock market lost 85% of its value in one year. And as Korea was in crisis, IMF, International Monetary Fund, and World Bank provided Korea with a rescue package because Korea was running out of money. At the end of 1997, Korea had enough foreign exchange reserves left to last the country about three days at the rate of capital flight at that time. So IMF and the World Bank provided a rescue package of $58 billion, largest ever in the history of these two international organizations by that time, provided that the Korean government sells at least one of the failed and nationalized banks to foreign investors in order for foreign investors to bring in the best practices in international market risk management to turn around these banks as part of the banking reform in Korea. So in that year, I was first with J.P. Morgan, and J.P. Morgan, as an investment bank, helps issuers or companies to sell themselves. You know, if you want to raise money in the stock market, you sell stock shares to investors. So the investment bank is considered to be on the sale side because you sell your capability to your client, and your client will have to raise capital in the market. So sell stocks. So you help sell your client. And that's why investment banks are considered to be on the sell side. Private equity investors buy assets. You know, they make investments, they buy assets. So private equity is considered to be on the buy side. And in the financial crisis, as what happened in 2008 in the United States, when Lehman Brothers failed, a number of financial institutions failed. Washington Mutual, as you remember, also failed. AIG was in great trouble. Even Goldman Sachs had to raise capital from Warren Buffett at very high rate. That is very expensive capital. So in the financial crisis, the sell side, the market froze. If you want to sell shares, and nobody would buy it because everybody was in panic. Think about 2008 when Lehman failed, right? If you want to sell stock of Lehman or anyone, the market froze. You couldn't do it. On the other hand, the valuation, the value of assets in a crisis will come down so much that if you're an investor with the cash, then it becomes a buyer's market. So in the financial crisis, it's not desirable to be on the sell side. It's more desirable to be on the buy side. On October 23rd, 1997, in the middle of Asian financial crisis, Hong Kong's stock index lost 16% of its value in one day. And that was when I decided the sell side would have no business to do in the foreseeable future, and I should quit investment banking. Whereas the buy side, if you have cash to buy assets, would become very attractive. And I decided on that day, October 23rd, 1997, that I would quit. J.P. Morgan, and joined Newbridge Capital, which was affiliated with TPG, to become a private equity investor. So that's what happened.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and uh, it's fitting that you were out shopping with your wife, uh, (laughs) right? Uh, And you describe that well in the book. Um, If you were to return to academia uh, to teach a course on the Asian financial crisis, what would you want your students to understand about its causes, uh, its contagion-like spread, and among other things, um, the importance of establishing uh, a phrase you use later, uh, a credit culture.
2: If you think about Asian financial crisis from 1997 and the so-called global financial crisis of 2008, you know, with the collapse of Lehman Brothers, when I say so-called global financial crisis, because that financial crisis didn't affect Asia so much. It affected the United States, affected Europe. Uh, many banks failed in America and uh, Europe, but none of the banks failed in Asia during that period of time, 2008 and 2009. That was because Asia 10 years ago went through the Asian financial crisis. Their banking system got restructured and became very healthy. So when 2008 came, they were all resilient and none of them failed. So here's the lesson. If you have a market where there's too much debt and where there's not enough equity, and then the economy is prone to get into a financial crisis as happened in Asia, as happened in the United States in 2008. And if banks overextend themselves and their customers cannot pay back their loans, then banks started to fail. So in 2008, it was the housing crisis customers or households were not able to pay back their mortgages that triggered off the housing crisis and therefore brought down many banks. So the lessons learned is that banks will have to be very well capitalized and banks will have to be very careful to choose their customers to lend only those who are capable of paying back the loans. So when I describe culture, credit culture, it means that banks would only make loans to good credits or those people, those companies are capable of paying the money back. And if you ignore that rule, then you get into trouble sooner or later. So in Korea, we helped build credit culture. And in China, in my third book, talked about how we helped build that credit culture. And the only way to prevent financial crisis is to make sure that uh, the banking system is sound. And that is, they don't make black loans, and they're well capitalized.
1: So there's uh, linking threads in these uh, Asian financial crisis. And the, uh, the as you say, it's it's not really fair to say it's, it's a global financial crisis. So.
2: Somebody coined a term called the Atlantic financial crisis, because it's only, it only affected the United States and, uh, and Europe to a large extent, but not so much to Asia
1: can you share some of your thinking at the time uh, with regard to the, the potential of the deal? And, and that is uh, Korea First Bank. You were bringing some past private equity experience, uh, the team was, uh, with banks, and, and that would include David Bonderman's experience. And that provided the motivation and, and the model from which to begin to maneuver and to negotiate for a bank that, as you put it, was insolvent many times over uh, relative uh, to its capital base. Is that a fair way to to put it? And how were you thinking at the time as, as you were getting started on your career on the buy side?
2: Well, typically for a good bank, the capital ratio, that is ratio of capital to its loan assets, to its total assets, roughly speaking, the capital ratio required by re- regulators at that time was 8%. And uh, the non-performing loan ratio is typically less than 1% or say 2%. Many Korean banks failed, including Korea First Bank, because the non-performing loan ratio or bad loan ratio was too high, 30%. If your capital is 8%, if your bad loan ratio is 30%, you know you're insolvent many times over because you'll lose much more capital than the capital that you have in the bank. That's what we meant when we say the situation was very dire, the bank failed, and it was insolvent many times over. So it was risky business to consider to invest in.
1: Yeah, thank you. And you bring that up and I think develop it uh, quite well in the book. And the book outlines uh the back and forth of the negotiations to to help close the deal and and to help uh, Newbridge uh, Capital establish a majority stake in in KFB or Korea First Bank. And in a way it could be written up as a a study of the the politics involved. Uh, when the tensions of this kind of illiberal uh, nationalism meets this more liberal globalization, if if that's a fair way to put it, but it, but it complicates this whole private public sector interest tension that seems to collide, and and there's kind of cross currents in the book. Uh, not to mention the strategy and tactics involved in the actual uh, negotiating uh, table itself. Uh, that said, uh, the union of KFC and Newbridge Capital was. Of uh, finally consummated in uh, December of 1999 a- as you note in the final sprint which is uh, chapter 13 um, but, it, but it was hardly the end of the story and, th- and that's the beauty in some ways of uh, Money Games. People really do get a feel for uh, the ups and downs of this uh, uh, a process. There was a journalist on the ground in 2000 by the name of uh, Donald Kirk the title of his book that he wrote in 2000 Korean crisis, unraveling of the miracle in the IMF era. Uh, Kirk notes no foreign interest uh, had actually taken control of a Korean bank. Newbridge Capital and government negotiators quickly bogged down in talks on Korea First Bank's debt load, deadlocking on selling back non performing loans to the government. Wei Jin Chan, managing director in Hong Kong for Newbridge Capital, spearheading the deal, negotiated with a toughness shared by few, if any, of his adversaries. Were there times, do you think, where where your personal negotiating style both helped and hindered uh, the new bridge position at the time? Um, Yes. Uh, Sometimes
2: when negotiation became too protracted, and sometimes when you felt that uh, the other side was backtracking, it could be very frustrating and sometimes you uh let that frustration bubble to the surface, which never stopped in the negotiation situation. And uh eventually I had to analyze why it was so difficult government official decision. You see, we as private equity investors make decisions very quickly. And once we make our decision, we stick to our decision. You know, we offer a term, we don't retreat or retreat uh, the terms. Whereas government officials would take very long time. And initially I didn't understand why they couldn't just say yes or no uh, to a proposal that we make. And sometimes they finally come to a decision, and then they change their mind. And we didn't understand it. And it took some time for me to appreciate their difficulties, which I didn't appreciate to start out with. See, as government officials, you're averse to risk taking because if something goes wrong, you will get blamed. And if by taking the risks, something goes very well, you don't get the financial reward. (laughs) You're a government official, right? If This bank makes a ton of money. You have nothing to do with that ton of money. You just receive your own salary. So what they are most concerned of is to make mistakes. And that's why it takes such a long time for them to make a decision. And then when they realize that they may have made a mistake, then they will try to take that decision back. So I finally came up with a solution to the issue. I decided as customary in the American commercial, route. when you go to a department store to buy things, if you don't like it after Christmas, you can go back and get the refund. In Hong Kong, there's no such a policy. If you buy something from a store, it's final. You can't get your money back. So when I was in America, I would buy things for my wife. If it's not something she likes, she would return them and uh, you know get her money back. In Hong Kong, I stopped buying for my wife because if I make a mistake, she can't refund uh, for that uh, particular merchandise. So I thought if I provide the government officials with the full refund policy, they will be more willing to make a decision just as I was more willing to buy things in America than I was in Hong Kong. So I said, you know, if you made the decision and then you realize that you made a mistake, you're allowed to take back that decision and we start all over again. But if I propose something, I will not retrade it. I will not take it back. And that sped up the negotiation process. Now they realize it doesn't matter if they make a mistake, they can always take it back without us feeling upset about it. So it's really a process of building trust but also putting yourselves in the shoes of the other side to understand what they're concerned about. That's how you negotiate with each other. And if you're not able to think from the perspective of the other side, very often negotiations fall down. So it was a very good learning process for us.
1: Yeah, no, that's interesting. Thanks for, for sharing all that. And I was just thinking how to finish off a thought from Kirk's book, because uh, he goes on, to make a point uh that I wanted to ask you about and so let, let me i guess put it this way so kirk writes from this journalistic point of view and um you you shared i think quite eloquently there about the situation with the bureaucrats and and what where their motivation lies kirk is writing as a journalist. And and of course, he's bringing another uh, perspective to things. So he's, but he's also got this macro perspective, right? And in the book, there's a chapter on banking and he attributes HSBC's failure to get a deal, whereas Newbridge Capital got the deal. He attributes HSBC's failure uh, to the Korean bureaucracy's preference for Newbridge Capital uh, not being a bank, and thus less likely to make trouble for the government. He wrote in his chapter, he said, hey, why did Newbridge get the deal while HSBC failed? Until the deal was announced, the conventional wisdom had been that HSBC would succeed because it was a bank. Newbridge, since it was not a bank, it was often said, did not have the expertise the Koreans wanted to rescue Korea First Bank. The exact opposite of this reasoning, however, prevailed. Newbridge won out because it was not a banker, was not among, for instance, Dai Wu's querulous uh, foreign creditors and would not align with them. Difficult though Newbridge might be, Wei jin Chan could promise not to make so much trouble for the government, the banking system, and underlying relationships with the Chobol. The FSC would find no better option. HSBC, in contrast, this is again Kirk making this assertion here, would demand stringent standards and would surely have exploited Sole Bank as a mechanism for enforcing them. So, anyways, I wanted to get your your thoughts on that because he wrote that in two thousand. You have the micro perspective. You were there on the ground. How, how do you see it? I think the strong preference of
2: current government was for HSBC to buy the banks, one of the banks, because they wanted a world-class bank to come in with best international practices. And eventually, when we were trying to sell the bank, they also preferred for HSBC to be the buyer. And eventually, HSBC was not competitive with its rival. The same is true, in fact, with the acquisition of Bank. Initially, HSBC also targeted Korea First Bank, and then we picked Korea First Bank. And then they targeted Seoul Bank, but they failed to acquire Seoul Bank. It was not that the government preferred a private equity firm. The government definitively preferred a world-class bank, especially, specifically HSBC. But our terms were simply better our terms and conditions were simply better to the government. The major difference between what we proposed and what the government, what HSBC proposed, as I described in the book, is that we would allow the government to co-invest with us. So we have control of the bank, say 51%, the government would own 49%. And we were going to turn around the bank to make it profitable make it very valuable. And if we succeed, the government stood to reap half of the profit or half of the value of the turnaround bank. In fact, we even offered them some warrants so they get more than half of the benefits of a turnaround bank, even though we would have control since we would own 51%. Economic, economically, they will get more than 50%, of the economic benefit. But when it comes to control, we have the control. HSBC, however, would insist on basically, you can read the details in the book, acquiring 100% of the bank. And the government in both cases will have to put in a lot of capital to replace the bad loans in those banks. So the government will lose a lot of money. In our case, they stand to gain the benefit of a turnaround. You know, they get half of the benefits or the value of a turnaround institution. In HSBC's case, since HSBC wanted to buy 100% of the bank, they would get no upside. So it's the the upside that makes the difference for the Korean government. And that's why they sided with us. Reluctantly, I must say, because we were not preferred. We were the backup bidder, but Lee Hong-jae, the chairman of Korea's Financial Supervisory Commission eventually wrote a memoir as well. In his memoir, he said, we wanted to sell it to HSBC, but they offered all these terms that would make it very difficult for us to accept. Citibank also was there, offered some terms they couldn't accept. And then he said, Stan read our minds, and they offered to share the upside with us. I didn't read their minds. David bonderman just thought to incentivize the government to do the deal with us, then we need to share the upside with them. That was thought.
1: Yeah, so this is probably a good uh, point to, to bring up. Number one, Kirk's assertion there wasn't totally accurate in the sense that you were a safer bet.
2: He was doing some kind of logical speculation. He wanted to know. He didn't know what happened. Right. He, he was trying to figure out why the obvious choice was wrong, that is HSBC, why the Korean government went with this American private equity firm. And uh, because of lack of information, he had to deduce. he had to try to figure out what happened. So he came up with this theory. Uh, the theory doesn't really fit with uh, the reality, but uh, it's a logical explanation uh, from his heart. Yeah. This
1: is a good point, though, before we move and, and wrap up the second book. Uh, private equity does kind of catch it in the press at times or and or in academia where there's this kind of Barbarians at the gate perception of it. Whereas, if you read Money Games or or you listen to Money Games, because as I as I mentioned the audio book, I think it's David Schur or someone uh, reads that quite well. It really does kind of lay out the thinking that was going on. And as you were just talking about there, in fairness to the Korean side, and and then this idea that you guys weren't just in this to. Uh, make a bundle for the investors and then just get out of there. Uh, There was some thought that went into uh, structuring a fair deal. That's correct. We wanted to be fair, and the government
2: officials were very conscious of their own responsibilities to the nation, to taxpayers. So they wanted to get the best deal out of the negotiations. So we knew that uh, we had to accommodate the government side. And the government also knew there were certain conditions that they would have to grant us, given how broken this bank was. So eventually, it was meeting of the minds.
1: Even as you were wrapping up the success of the KFB deal in in December of 2004, you had already started working on another major bank deal in China, where no private investor, domestic or foreign, had ever controlled a nationwide commercial bank. And in this case, although the market potential was so much better, the target bank, uh, Shenzhen Development Bank, SDB, was, as you noted, technically insolvent and in much worse shape than Korea First Bank, as as you've mentioned, uh, when you took control of it. China research that you shared mentioned that Standard & Poor's estimated that the country's banking sector would need at least 10 possibly 20 years uh, to reduce its average non-performing loan ratio to a a more manageable level. Can you give listeners a sense of where things stood in your mind uh, with regard to KFB in Korea and how that impacted your thinking with regard to making a decision to move forward on the Chinese bank?
2: You're referring to my third book, Money Machine. The subtitle is a trailblazing American venture in China, describing how we at Newbridge Capital, which was later renamed as TBG Asia, acquired the control of a national bank in China called Indian Development Bank, SDB. The fact that uh, we had the experience in Korea to turn around a troubled bank really gave us the credentials to buy a troubled bank and try to turn it around, restructure it, And rebuild it. You see, by banking regulation in the United States, a private equity firm is not allowed to buy control of a commercial bank. By the Bank Holding Company Act of 1956, no non bank institution can buy control of a bank defined as more than 25% of the shares of a bank. In, In the United States, none of the banks is controlled by a particular industrial firm or private equity firm because that's not allowed by law. And that's true for many countries. And in China, a single foreign investor cannot own more than 20% of a bank. And that investor has to be a qualified financial institution, which does not include private equity. And all the foreign investors combined could not own more than 25% of a bank. So, ordinarily, a private equity firm like ours would not be able to buy control of a bank, either in China or in the United States. But as you note, you just read a little passage from my book, Chinese entire banking system was very troubled. The bad loan ratio for the entire banking system was about 30% in 2002. And the total amount of bad loans represented about half of the GDP of China, half of the GDP of China. That's why Standard & Poor's which is international credit rating agency estimated it would take China ten or as much as twenty years to reduce the bad loan ratio to thirty percent to a more manageable five percent, and this was uh, two thousand two. If their prediction had come true, then China would still be resolving its bad loan ratios today, twenty years later, right? But China was very keen to reform its banking system under the Prime Minister Lu Rongji. And they also saw how Asian banks during the Asian financial crisis got into trouble. And then all the other Asian countries eventually restructured their banking system. China was spared from Asian financial crisis because the Chinese market, capital market, was more or less closed. So there was no capital flight. There was not much foreign capital, and there's therefore there was not much capital flight during that period of time. But the problems plaguing the Chinese banking system were similar to those plaguing the Korean banking system: a lot of bad loans, undercapitalization, and so forth. So China itself was trying to restructure and reform its banking system, and that's where the opportunity came. So some people saw our experiences in Korea and identified this particular very troubled bank and suggested that we buy control of this bank. And the rest of the story, of course, I describe in the book. By the way, at the time, we were very reluctant because we didn't know how much risk there was going to be, whether or not we were going to lose our shares.
1: So here you were uh, still managing the KfB deal in Korea well that that is you hadn't exited uh, the deal yet albeit with Robert Cohen's expertise on the ground he was the CEO that or the second CEO uh, that that you had hired that that in a sense is a, is a story in itself and I I think uh, readers will benefit a lot from that. A particular part of the book, among others. So you're you're juggling these m- multiple projects. Um, your metaphor is a money machine, uh, hence the new title. And you've mentioned it. Your second chapter title: "A License to Print Money." Can you explain why this new opportunity appeared to be just that? Um, how did you present things to Newbridge, uh, Newbridge's uh, investment review committee when you were selling the deal to them?
2: At that time, we had not made the decision that we definitely will make the investment. We just wanted to explore the opportunity to see whether or not there could be a deal. This was before our due diligence. So we were yet to figure out how troubled, how broken this bank was at the time. But at the same time, we were very interested to look into it. Because as I mentioned, either in the United States or in China, for a private equity firm, To get into commercial banking is almost impossible by regulation, right? So the entry barrier is very high, and to get a license is almost impossible. Circumstances were very special at that time because China was going to reform its banking system because this bank was very broken. And therefore, we possibly could be allowed to look into investing and to buy control of this nationwide bank, we thought that was a very rare opportunity, even though we were yet to check out this opportunity. So that's number one, license. And the second point is in a competitive market like the United States, like here in Hong Kong, the interest rates are set by banks. And if you lend at an interest rate too high, then customers will not borrow from you. And they will borrow from a competing bank, which offers a lower interest rate. And if your deposit interest rate is too low, then people deposit with other banks, not with you. So it's very competitive. And banks make money on the difference between lending rate and deposit rate. You know, that margin, that what we call the spread, is how banks make money. Typically, in a very competitive market, it's very thin. It's like... margin, your lending interest rate may be 5%, and uh, your deposit interest rate may be 3%, but then there's 1% uh, cost to operate the bank, so your net margin is only about 1%. In China at the time, interest rates were controlled by the central bank. You couldn't lend as a bank at the interest rate below a certain level. And you couldn't take deposits at the interest rate above certain level. So the spread is very fat. It's about 3.5% to even 4%, no matter how much competition there is. And that's very, very special. So that's what I mean by this is almost like a license to print money because your, your spread is guaranteed by the central bank. The catch is if you make bad loans, if you throw money away, then it doesn't matter how much spread there is, right? You're not going to make money. So we will have to bring in a risk management system to make sure that we don't create new bad loans. So on one hand, we thought it was a good opportunity to look into the possibility of getting this license to print money. On the other hand, we didn't know how big a hole there was already there Capital hole because they made so many bad loans, and whether or not we'll be able to dig ourselves out of that hole if we bought control of this bank. So it was a dilemma, but before we checked it out, we would not know. And the story of this book is about how we were fighting on one hand to be allowed to look into this opportunity. On the other hand, we were very reluctant to commit ourselves because we're afraid of stepping into. A black hole. So it seems at the time that we were very troubled by the possibility of losing the deal. And we were also very troubled by the possibility of doing the deal.
1: Which is all more incredible, uh, coming as it does as uh, the follow-up to the KFB deal in South Korea. It's not hard to understand why Harvard Business School published it as uh, one of their case studies in finance, including a second one uh, that deals with the rights issue that um, uh, you had some trouble uh, that you outline in the book, uh, trying to uh, raise capital, you were restructuring the bank and dealing with the non-performing loans, and and at the same time trying to incentivize uh, the bank employees at all levels. So, I, so I want to ask you to share some of your thoughts on the ownership mentality uh, that you were able and tried to frame on the ground there at uh, SDB. Yes, I think regardless
2: of the context. I wrote about in either of the two books. When it comes to business, how do you make a business successful? How do you make people successful? I think a sense of ownership is critically important. If you are the owner, you have all the incentive to do things right. Even if you lack knowledge, you lack experience, you will try your best to do your best and to do your work well, right? And if you consider yourself just employee and getting a fixed salary, then you spend your time nine to five, and you don't worry whether the business is successful or not successful as long as your job is secure. And that's not the way for anybody to exert the best efforts. So my thinking is that wherever you are, first, as an individual, you have to feel like an owner, and then you can do your best. If you manage a company, whether it's a bank, industrial firm, you have to instill this sense of ownership in the minds and in the hearts of your employees so they feel like owners, so they try their best. How do you do that? I think there are two ways of doing that. One is to make sure that their economic interests are aligned with the owners. You know, They have stock options, they have bonuses, so that if they do well, then the company does well and they do well. So that's one way of doing that. The second is to involve them in decision-making. If they are involved in decision-making, then they feel like owners. And we, PAG, my firm, now we manage more than $50 billion in capital to make investments. When we make a decision at the investment committee level, every partner has a veto. Every partner can say no to a deal. Now, that system may make the decision-making less efficient because anybody can say no to a deal, and then the deal is that. But that system forces everybody to participate in decision-making because people don't easily say no to a deal. When a team has worked on a deal for a long time, then you just say no. There has to be a reason. You have to think about it. And when you say no, there has to be very good reason. Unanimous decision-making means that if anything goes wrong with this particular deal in the future, we don't point fingers at each other because we all participated in decision-making. That's what I call instilling a sense of ownership because you participated in decision-making and you make decisions like owners. So incentives and participation in decision-making would create a sense of ownership among your human resources, your employees. And that's the best way to maximize the value
1: of the business. Thanks for sharing that. Shan, it it really uh, was a pleasure uh, to finally talk with you and uh, appreciate you sharing your time with us about your remarkable life and all the books published by Wiley & Sons, your 2019 Out of the Gobi, My Story of China and America. Available also as an audiobook. Followed in 2020 by Money Games, the inside story of how American Deal Makers saved Korea's most iconic bank. Also, again, a really thoughtful and well-done audiobook. And your latest, just out, of Money Machine, a trailblazing venture of an American company in China. Shan, thanks again. Well, thank you very much,
2: Keith. Uh, it has been a pleasure. Thank you.